text for us today is Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. I'll read them for us. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Um, So I alluded to this, but today we are taking on the topic of discipleship. If we went back to the very first sermon I preached this year, we were setting the theme for the entire year and we said it was a life lived in Christ. And that's really a focus on Christian discipleship. And so not just because it's the theme of our worship year, but I also wanted to share with you another reason why I think this message is worth the price of your attention. Um, Recently, I went to a pastor's conference where one of uh, the higher-ups from our church body came and talked to us about um, things we can do in ministry, and uh, his focus was on discipleship. And one of the things that he said that really struck me was, if we get discipleship right, everything else falls into place. If we get discipleship right, everything else falls into place. If we get discipleship right, outreach falls into place. Growth in numbers falls into place. Growth in offerings falls into place. Pastoral care falls into place. If you have a group of people who understand discipleship and are pursuing discipleship of Jesus all together, it is amazing what a church can do. So we're going to focus on discipleship, and we're going to look at um, a couple different aspects of discipleship. First, we're going to look at four stages of discipleship that this text shows us. And then we're also going to see not just how we can grow in our own discipleship, but then how we can bring others into discipleship, which is the call of Jesus to the church. Go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching. So the four points that we're going to walk through, there are four points on your notes sheet. If you grabbed a notes sheet, it's not embarrassing to go grab a notes sheet if you haven't already right now. But these are going to be the four stages of discipleship that we're going to walk through that the text shows us. And um, what I want you to see in this is how, as, as we look at discipleship, it really isn't a binary one or none, right? It's not you either are a disciple or you are not. Uh, That is true in a salvation sense. You either are saved or you are not saved. But for those of us who are saved, discipleship is not just a one-time event. It's a process. It's stages. And that's what we're going to walk through today. So the first of those stages is the stage that I'm calling interaction with Jesus. Um, The way the text starts, Jesus is preaching to a whole bunch of people by the Lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it gets pretty crowded there, so he asks Simon, can I get out into your boat a little bit into the water, which would make it easier for people to see and to hear him. And of course, Simon agrees. Now, if you're just dropping into this text at Luke chapter 5 and you haven't read the context, this seems sort of random. 
I think we do this sometimes if we look at the calls of Jesus' disciples. We sort of think that how it happened was Jesus was just walking and he says to somebody, follow me, and they're like eyes rolled back in their heads and they got up robotically and followed him. That's really not what happened. Um, in every case of a discipleship, Jesus has some sort of previous relationship with his disciples. If you would go in the context back into chapter four, you would find that Jesus had just healed Simon's mother-in-law of a severe fever. So whether Peter thought, I owe him one, or I've seen some good things that he's been doing, um, Peter was willing to let Jesus take his boat out into the water. And this is what I call the, the first stage of discipleship. It's interaction with Jesus. It's being willing to at least entertain the possibility of Jesus being around me and being in my life. Um, every one of us goes through this. If you're born into the Christian church, baptized as a baby, uh, you find this faith through your parents. Your parents bring you along and they help you interact with Jesus. Now, as a child, we know that you can have faith, but that faith is not based on, well, I've read the entire scriptures, or I understand the Trinity, or any of these things. It's given to you by the Holy Spirit. But the same thing happens if you come to faith later in life. If you come to faith later in life, you first begin to interact with Jesus because of somebody else, whether it's a friend or a significant other or a family member of some sort. Our first interactions with Jesus are always through someone else. And this is what Peter was experiencing. Right? He saw Jesus working in the life of his mother-in-law, and so he was at least willing to let Jesus have a few moments on his boat out on the lake. Now, to break this down a little bit more, I first want to just give you this thought to consider. Um, people consider Jesus in their life after seeing Jesus in someone else's life. It is almost non-existent that someone will start interacting with Jesus without some sort of nudge from another person. And that's really important for us to consider as we think about what it means to bring disciples into the church. Um, part of discipling another person is letting them see Jesus in your life. I think we have this idea that like evangelism or outreach is just, let's gather a whole bunch of people around and talk to them about Jesus. And that's not wrong, it just is skipping a step. The first step is to let people see Jesus in your life. And that's what Peter was experiencing. He was seeing Jesus work in somebody else's life, and so he was willing to let Jesus exist in his life. The problem, though, with this stage of discipleship is it's knowing about Jesus, but not knowing Jesus. And so maybe you can think, am I in this stage, or do I know somebody who is in this stage of discipleship? They know some facts about Jesus. They know maybe what Jesus is capable of. But as far as letting Jesus get close, they're not there yet. This is going to be the quickest of the stages because it starts to get more defined as we look at the next couple stages. But this is that first stage. And maybe you can think to yourself, am I in that stage of discipleship or, or maybe do I know somebody who is? The second stage of discipleship is functional trust in Jesus. Functional trust in Jesus. As the text goes on, after Jesus is done preaching in the boat, he says to Peter, push out into deep water and let's th let the nets down for a catch. Um, now this is completely illogical by Peter's, by Peter's standards. And Peter is a professional fisherman and Jesus is a professional carpenter. And I know how much all of you love to be told how to do your jobs, especially by somebody who's not qualified. But that's what Peter was experiencing at that moment. 
Not only that, they had worked all night and had not caught anything, so it didn't seem to be a good time to catch fish. And Peter knew better than going out into the deep water. You don't fish in the deep water. You fish in the shallow water. And you don't fish in the middle of the day. You fish at the end or the beginning of the day. There's no reason that Peter should have thought that this made any sense whatsoever. And he kind of hints at that in the way that he answers. In the text, you saw it. He says, because you say so, I'll do it. Like, I got no other reason to believe that this is a good idea. Everything in me says this is wrong. But because you say so, I'll do it. And that helps us define functional trust. Functional trust in Jesus is doing something simply because Jesus says so. It might be illogical. It might hurt your prospects in some sense, social, financial, success. It might cause some sort of embarrassment. You got to think Peter's on the lake with people who live around a lake, even if they're not fishermen, they have sort of a a working knowledge of fishing and they know as he goes out to drop the nets down in the middle of the lake that he's doing something illogical. Maybe Peter thinks, I'm gonna embarrass myself by doing this. And yet he still does it. That functional trust is doing something simply because Jesus says so. And first we have to think about this for ourselves. If we're in this stage of discipleship, we are willing to do some things in our life simply because Jesus says so. Not because it makes logical sense, not because it works, not because it's going to advance anything for us, but simply because Jesus says so. And that's really hard. The pragmatist in every one of us wants to do things because they make sense, but Jesus says, sometimes I tell you to do things that don't make sense because they're good for you. I would hazard a guess, too, that um, for some of you, and maybe all of you, The Holy Spirit and the scriptures are pressing something on your heart right now that is like Peter being asked to push out into deep water. There's something that the Holy Spirit is is calling you to do. It may seem illogical. It may seem like it will hurt your situation. It may forfeit some possible advancement in some sphere of your life. But you know Jesus is calling you to do it, to functionally trust in him. Don't ignore that call. But then second, as we think about how to bring other people into this functional trust in Jesus, it's important to understand how functional trust gets made. And maybe for some of you, you're thinking about what I just said about the call that Jesus has on your life, and you're like, I'm not sure I can do that. Well, the text helps us understand. How do you get this functional trust that's willing to do something simply because Jesus says so? Functional trust, it it, uh, consists of two factors. The first is ability And the second is relational certainty. So I stole this analogy from another pastor, but I think it's really good. Um, If my car breaks down, I'm not going to ask my best friend to work on my car. My best friend is a great guy. I love him. I know he wants what's best for me in my life. He also knows nothing about fixing cars. So I have relational certainty with him, but I know that he doesn't have ability. Uh, This last summer, I moved to Streetsville, and when we moved, I wanted to get a new mechanic. And there are a number of mechanics in Streetsville. Um, They all have ability, right? They all run their own businesses, but I have no relational certainty with any of them. I know they can do the job. I just don't know if they're going to gouge me for three times the price. So what I did, actually, is I asked some of you, my Cross of Life friends, um, where you go if you live in this area, and I got a couple of recommendations that gave me that relational certainty in the ability of those mechanics. You need both right? Ability and relational certainty. And Jesus gives that to us right in the text. You see, first of all, that Jesus has ability. 
right? He shows it through his work on Simon's mother-in-law. You can also see that he has relational certainty later in the text when he forgives Peter as Peter confesses his sins to him. But on a macro level, you can see this just by Jesus' very existence in life. Like if you're ever worried if you can functionally trust Jesus, let me give you two things to think about. First of all, his resurrection. If Jesus can rise from the dead, then he has the ability to do whatever is necessary for you. And his crucifixion on the cross. If he was willing to give up his life because he loved you that much, you can have relational certainty with him. And so if you're at this point where you're, you're struggling with, can I functionally trust Jesus in this moment? Go back to those two things. His death that shows you his love and his resurrection that shows you his power. But then as we think about how to apply this to other people, as we try to bring them along into discipleship, I think we have to realize that generally the Christian church is pretty good at communicating Jesus' ability. We're pretty good at saying, Jesus died for your sins, he forgives you, he loves you, he rose from the dead, he's giving you eternal life. We're really good at communicating all the things Jesus has done. What we struggle with a little bit more is relational certainty. So let me give you a scenario. We do some program or something as an outreach event, and we gather a whole bunch of people here, and I get up and I tell everybody, Jesus died for you, he rose for you, eternal life, the whole bit. Do you know what everyone who's not a Christian is thinking at that moment? You're a salesman. And that might work for you, but I don't know that it works for me. Because they don't have relational certainty. They have the exact same relationship with me that I have with all the mechanics in Streetsville. I'm sure you can do it, I'm sure it works for you, but I don't have that relational certainty. And so one of the calls for us as Christians as we think about bringing people into discipleship is offering relational certainty. And I think think that means very clearly that Christians need to be investing in the life of those who do not believe in Jesus. Like it can't just be, I'm just going to invite you to my church sometime. It can't just be, hey, we're doing this thing. You You should come. It needs to be investment. It needs to be showing those people that not only is Jesus powerful enough to save, but that he has saved me and I am certain in your life relationally. If I can give you some examples of how to do this, I think the easiest one is to invite people over to your house for dinner. Your neighbors, family members who don't believe. If you can continue to give them that relational certainty, that investment over weeks or months or years that you actually do care about them, it will make it far more easy for them to understand the power that Jesus has for their lives. Okay, functional trust. The third one, third point, excuse me, is a new identity, a new identity. We see this in the text as, of course, the the disciples, or excuse me, no, they're not disciples at this point, but the, the men let their nets down into the water and they catch this huge catch of fish, so much so that the nets are breaking and the boats are sinking, which is saying something because these are fishing boats, they're built for lots of fish. Anyways, they get back to the the shore and immediately Simon gets on the ground and says, Lord, go away from me. I am a sinful man. And it's really interesting to me that it's really at this point where, where Simon gets it. He like understands Jesus. Like when Jesus was preaching, he wasn't falling down in repentance. When Jesus called him to go out into deep water. He functionally trusted Jesus, but he wasn't falling down in repentance before Jesus. It's at this moment when he starts to. And I think that's really interesting for us to consider. That means that it is possible to functionally trust Jesus and still not get him. 
It's possible to functionally trust Jesus, but still not get him, not understand him. If you want an example of this, I think probably the easiest example is uh, the Christian who functionally trusts Jesus to be their savior. Like, I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I know that my sins are forgiven. But that's kind of it. Like, Jesus is like eternal life insurance policy. They're not overwhelmed by the idea of being with Jesus. They're not, as the Psalms say, just thinking about him, musing on him through the night. They're not, they're not willing to, to empty their schedule to be around God's people and God's word and God's sacrament. They keep Jesus at arm's length. They have some functional trust in him, certainly, but they don't get him. They're not willing to fall down on their face and say, everything about me is messed up. I do not deserve to be in your presence, Jesus. If you're wondering, how do you get to that point? If maybe you realize your life is really just a certain level of functional trust in Jesus, but not really understanding him to the point where you are raptured by his love and his power and his grace in your life, I think you need to see what Jesus does to Peter in this text. Um, in, in order for someone to take on a new identity where they see themselves entirely defined by who Jesus is, they first need to deconvert from their previous identities. Like if you're struggling with this idea that Jesus is going to be the everything of my life, it's probably because you're still worshiping something else or identifying yourself with something else that you are holding on to more tightly than Jesus. Uh, typically, people get their identity, the way they see themselves, their purpose in life, from three places. It's either from their accomplishments, their connections, or their character. So accomplishments, things that I've done, the amount of money I make, that sort of thing. Um, connections, the people I know, or the people who know me. Or character, the type of person that I am, usually connected to morals. If you think through your life, in general, that's the default for every one of us. I'm successful because I work at this type of job and I've risen up in the company or I make this kind of money or people know who I am or they admire me for something that I do or something that I say or I'm generally better than other people. I'm not like all those people in that category who don't behave the right way. We all generally build our identities on this and what we need to be is deconverted from that in order to see that our life should be identified with Jesus. Now, Jesus does this to Peter. If you think about it, Peter has all three of those. He has accomplishments. First of all, he's a small business owner, right? He has these boats, which would have been a considerable amount of overhead necessary in order to run the business. He's got partners, right? James and John and arguably other people in that business with him. So he's got connections. And he seems to be a pretty moral, upstanding guy, right? Um, he at least is not at first in any way worried about his sinfulness before Jesus. He thinks himself to be a pretty good dude. But Jesus deconverts him from all of those. Do you see it? Peter, you think the business is going well because you're pretty good at your job? Watch this. I can give you the biggest catch of fish you've ever had in your life. And you think you're somebody, Peter, because of your connections? You barely know who I am. And I'm God. And you think, Peter, you're a pretty good person? Peter obviously realized that. In the presence of the holy, all-powerful, eternal God, Jesus Christ, he was on his knees. You understand this, by the way. 
I know it doesn't feel like it today, but wait till this week. Summer's coming. And if you like summer like I do, you're going to end up at the lake sometime on a beach. And you're going to be laying there and some dude or some girl with a rockin' bod is going to walk past. And you're going to be like, why did I eat all those donuts? Like when you're in the presence of something objectively better than you, you immediately feel shame. If we can feel that just in a small way, imagine how Peter felt when he was in the presence of the holy God. He was deconverted in that moment from all of his identities. But he wasn't just left there. He was given a new identity. Luke subtly hints at this for us, excuse me, in the text. Throughout the text, he calls him Simon. But at this moment, when he's falling down in his face, he uniquely calls him Simon Peter. That's because Luke knows that Jesus will later name Simon Peter because of the confession of faith that Peter has. That Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. See, Luke is foreshadowing in a sense that Peter's identity had been changed from small business owner with lots of connections and relative moral uh, superiority to somebody completely new. I think it's also interesting to note that all those things that, that Peter was deconverted from, those are all good things, right? Owning your own business, knowing good people, being a good person, they're all good things. Jesus just wants something higher. He even goes a step further than just giving Peter this new identity. You are my own. I call you. He calls him into something. He says, do not fear, which is the gospel. Don't be afraid because you are a sinful person. But now I'm going to make you a fisher of people. I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you direction in life. And we'll talk about what it means to be a fisher of people. But just at that moment, realize this is discipleship. It is growing to the place where you no longer identify with all the other things that normally people identify with and identify yourself solely with who Jesus is and what Jesus calls you to do. Which leads us to the last of the stages of discipleship, which is a new direction. We get this from the very last verse of the text where the text tells us that they, meaning Peter, James, John, pulled their boats up to the shore, left everything, and followed him. And I looked it up in the Greek, um, and the word everything here means everything. The way I like to think about this last stage of discipleship is that nothing is off the table with Jesus. Nothing is off the table with Jesus. Jesus tells me to do something crazy, something outlandish, something that people I know will, will look at me funny for or ask questions about. Jesus says so, I'm in. And that can look like all sorts of crazy things, right? What if it's like a scenario where you get a huge windfall of money, whether it's an inheritance or a good business deal or some sort of investment pays off for you, and instead of keeping it, you give all of it away. All of it. You keep a cent for yourself. What if it meant selling your house, downsizing, so that you could use that money to bless someone else, to bless somebody who maybe needs to get into a house or somebody who's poor and needs that support? What if you went down from two or three cars to one car, so that you could use that money to support somebody else? What if it meant changing your job because your current job is not giving you enough time to be in worship every Sunday and not giving you enough time to be in Bible study every week, so you need different hours, even if it pays less? What about quitting your job so that your children can have a parent home all the time or that you simply can have the time to volunteer for your church, support your neighbors, what if it means considering going into public ministry? You, you think just because you're not in college or high school that you can't be a pastor. That's absolutely untrue. You could be a pastor. You could be a staff minister. 
We could help you down that path, and I'm pretty sure I could do it without ever getting you to leave Canada. You could ask me about that later. What sort of radical things could you do if nothing was off the table with Jesus? What sort of outlandish things, life-altering things for somebody else could you do if nothing was off the table with Jesus? You think about Peter. He left the biggest catch of his entire life. Arguably, maybe a whole year's wages in that catch. He just leaves it on the shore. And he leaves the business behind. And he leaves his connections behind. And he leaves his name behind. Nothing was off the table once he understood who Jesus was. Okay, so those are the four stages of discipleship, and that brings us to the application points at the bottom of your notes sheet, which you can take whatever notes you feel are appropriate on these applications. But the first of those is the process of discipleship. Um, As you walk through the four stages of discipleship, I think it would be good for every one of us to evaluate ourselves and ask, which stage of discipleship do I find myself most often in? Of course, there's a certain level of fluctuation between these things, but in general, where do I find myself? Do I find myself in the place where I'm essentially living my faith vicariously through somebody else? Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend. Do I find myself in the place where I do functionally trust Jesus with some things, but I'm kind of just meh about him for the most part? Like he's there and it's good and I like kind of where he is, but I don't really have a desire to grow or or increase in faith or service or any of these things. Do you find yourself in that third stage? where you're overwhelmed by the grace of God and that, that God would forgive you when you know the sins that you've committed? Or you at that place where nothing is off the table from Jesus? I think it's good for every one of, us to, one of us to evaluate that and then to know it doesn't really matter. The process of discipleship is not contingent on anything for your faith. Like we said, you can be in that first stage and still be a believer. You can be in that last stage and be a believer. And like I said previously, salvation, whether you are saved by Jesus, is binary. You are either saved or not saved. You are a disciple or you are not a disciple. The reason to study the process of discipleship is to ask ourselves this question. It's really important. Do I care to grow? Do I care to grow? I believe Jesus saves not because of our works, but because of his work. Not because we are obedient, but because he was obedient. But I also believe that that will work in the heart of a believer, a desire to grow in discipleship. And maybe one of the most frustrating things that I find, especially in North American Christianity, is no desire to grow. Like a heart that conceptually understands Jesus, maybe has some functional trust in Jesus, but really has no desire to grow in him. I'm not one who can judge hearts. Turns out I'm not God. But I can judge actions, and I've gotten pretty good at this as a pastor. And there are times when I I speak to people who would call themselves Christians, and I ask questions like, do you want to grow in this? And their answers are, I'm okay. You know, I'm pretty pretty comfortable with the way I'm doing my faith right now. I don't really want to grow in that. I mean, I already put some time aside for that. Look, I can't say you're not a Christian, but that doesn't sound like a Christian. Okay? Okay? We need to be honest about that. Christians are marked by a desire to grow in discipleship. And whether you're at stage one or stage four or somewhere in the between or or fluctuating here or there, that's not so much the, the importance as that desire to grow. The desire to put more functional trust in Jesus, to, to be overwhelmed by him, to ultimately take nothing, uh, have nothing off the table for him. 
And I wasn't sure totally where to put this into like my preaching. I thought about it for a while, but I think now's a good time for us to maybe wrestle with it. It just, it should make us think about what it means to be part of Cross of Life. Like we are not going to grow numerically simply by putting out the right programs or doing the right type of advertising. We're not going to grow that way. We might grow in the amount of human beings who are in this room, but that's not what counts. What counts is disciples. And if we are going to disciple people, that is going to start by us first being disciples. It's not going to start by us being members of a nonprofit organization called Cross of Life registered with the government of Canada. It's going to be living a life of discipleship with Jesus, following him where he goes, doing the mundane things with him, learning from him regularly, and doing it with others. And to that end, I would ask you all to evaluate yourself. Am I a member of Cross of Life because my name exists on some document in Dropbox called Cross of Life Official Membership List? Or does what matters to me more is, is, it, is my relationship with Jesus and my discipling of him? I think every one of us should press on this because it's so easy to have low expectations in a North American Christian context. It's so easy to walk into a church and just kind of expect that it's just going to exist and continue existing and I can kind of just pick and choose what I like about it instead of rather investing in the Christian community, which is what God calls us to do. To having high expectations for ourselves and others. That this matters, that this is real, that God is present with us in Jesus, in his word and his sacraments. And that is worth orienting our life around. I could say more on this, but I know I'm already going a little bit long. So let's get to the second point. Following Jesus is deconverting from the church of money. I already alluded to this, that Peter was willing to leave that huge catch of fish on the shore. And uh, I think I should press this on us a little bit more. We haven't done a financial campaign as a congregation since we did the For the Generations to Come series back in 2019. And that was awesome. It was just beautiful to see the generosity of, of you, of God's people, as you considered ministry in the long term. And I, I do believe because we did that, um, we have set ourselves up for some, some real cool opportunities moving forward. But as I've alluded to before, giving generously is not something we do because we have something to give to, but because something was given to us. Like you can go look up Cross of Life's financials. That's not the point, whether we're above budget or below budget. Whether we're in a good financial position or not, it doesn't matter. God calls you to be generous with your money. And so maybe this is the year where nothing's off the table with Jesus. And you say, the biblical principle of 10% of my income, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it for three months. I'm going to try it for six months. See how it goes. If you understand what Jesus has done for you, it may be an easy way to start. But if that seems even too intimidating, let me try this one on you. Just 1% more of your income. 1% more than what you're given. Figure out what the percent is and then consider what is 1% more than what I'm currently giving per month. Pray, pray about that. Consider what Jesus has done for you and think about what it means to leave everything behind to follow him. Third application, fishing for people. Um, Jesus uses this metaphor of fishing. It's one of the two metaphors that Jesus uses um, repeatedly in the scriptures to talk about the ministry of the church. It's fishing and it's shepherding. How is fishing and the work of the church the same? Well, fishing requires patience. Sometimes the fish aren't biting, but you go out anyways. Um, fishing requires odd hours. You're up and out on the lake different times than typical laborers. 
Fishing requires sacrifice because you're up at different hours. You can't do the normal things that average people do with their time. Fishing, at least at Jesus' time, was done with nets, and so it required partners. Notice Peter is there with James and John. That's because they fish with, uh, excuse me, that's because they're fishing with nets and not lines or reels. Fishing requires an ability to deal with messy things, like fish. And finally, fishing requires an ability to trust the process, to know that you're doing the right thing even if the fish aren't biting, and not to change things just because they aren't biting, but to come back the next day and try again. Because fish are not machines, they're living beings. If fish were machines, they would be really easy to catch, but it turns out they're, they're not. And so that patience, that trusting of the process leads to catches of fish. How is the work of the church the same? The work of the church requires patience. It requires us to realize that sometimes churches go through seasons where growth is not obvious. It requires sacrifice. If you want to be a part of Jesus' disciples, you can't live like everyone else. You need to give up things that the average person does. The work of the church requires partners. It means that we're all going to have to work together on this. Like if Caleb Schultz is the only one trying to disciple people in our church, we are not going to grow. I reasonably can pastor effectively 10 to 15 families. And if you want to know why I picked that number, ask me later. But that's reasonably what I can do. We have about 10 or 15 families who regularly attend Cross of Life. If we want to disciple more people, it's going to be because I'm not doing the work. Others are coming along with me. The work of the church requires an ability to deal with messy things, namely people. Turns out people are not machines. They are messy. And, and if you like a church where everything is clean and everything works and everybody gets along and everybody fulfills all their duties, this is probably not the church for you because we're going to preach Jesus here. And Jesus forgives messy people and he attracts messy people. We've got to be okay with that. We've got to be okay with the fact that some of us are not going to get it all the time. We're not going to repent. We're not going to be patient or kind or generous with one another sometimes. But if you want a church that's, that loves repentance, that realizes that we're all messed up, and still continues to come to Jesus together, this is the church for you. Then we also need to say fishing uh, requires a trust of the process, right? To say we're going to keep doing what God has called us to do, to make disciples by baptizing and teaching, and trust that he's going to give us the growth. Final application then, Peter hates himself, but Jesus doesn't. As Peter's lying on the ground there, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I can't imagine what's running through his head. All the things he's done, all the things he's left undone, the type of person that he is that he finally realizes he is. And yet Jesus doesn't hate Peter. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I need you. I'm going to use you. Yeah, you are sinful, and I should go away from you, but I won't. And it's interesting if you play this out, remember, we know the worst thing that Peter ever did. He denied Jesus outright. And Jesus knew that. And yet Jesus didn't hate Peter. Does somebody know the worst thing you've ever done? Maybe some of you haven't done anything that's all that egregious. What about the worst thing you've ever thought? Does somebody know that? Jesus does. And he still loves you. And he says, don't be afraid. I'm here to use messed up sinful people, people who realize their sinfulness to accomplish the work of my church. I know because I talked to some of you 
that you feel that guilt regularly, that hating of yourself because you went back to that thing again that you told yourself you'd never go back to, that you can't seem to break this habit of whatever selfish behavior it is that hurts you or hurts other people. You hold on to the mistakes you've made in the past. You're worried about the future that's to come. I need you to hear this message. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Jesus still chooses you despite your sin, despite your unfaithfulness, despite the fact that very often we don't desire to grow in discipleship and yet he still calls us again. And that should push us back into this moment on Sunday morning every week where Jesus once again calls us by his gospel into discipleship. I pray that that would be the future of our congregation, a congregation who wants to grow together, not to see church as a social obligation that I fulfill every week, but a chance to grow closer to my Savior and his body, the church. Let's make that a priority. Let's hold ourselves to high expectations, and let's glory in the free grace that our Savior has given us. And let's pray about it. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling Peter into discipleship and and showing us that moment so that we can learn from it for our own call into discipleship. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work on every heart that is here, regardless of where we are in our discipleship of you, that we would have a desire to grow, that we wouldn't be passive or apathetic about what it means to be a Christian, but that we would press on towards the goal like like a runner running a race, like a soldier preparing for battle. I pray that you would work in all of our hearts a desire to ask for help. We see ministry, like you said, fishing is, is a partner thing. That We do it together, that we rely on one another, that we communicate with one another. I pray that you would give me, as, their, as the pastor of this congregation, those opportunities as well to lead your people, to shepherd them as they go closer to being with you forever. We ask all that in your name. Amen.